0: Every so often you will have a crop of great rookies in a sport. That perhaps this year in the NFL, some of you that follow that, this is the best rookie group of running backs that have been seen in a long time. The Titans, who are undefeated, and where as they continue to be more undefeated, or as the undefeated streak continues, people around here get more excited. Have one of those rookies, a great guy that was leading until last week the AFC in rushing. And it says that what's interesting is every once in a while you have this great crop of young guys and that Billy Graham actually began preaching in a great crop of young preachers. In the 1940s, there were three great young evangelists. 1945, Billy Graham really started to pack out auditoriums. People started to come to listen to him. But he wasn't the most popular guy that year, even his age. You see, there were two other guys, Chuck Templeton and Braun Clifford. All three men in 1945 were in their mid-20s. One seminary president, after hearing Chuck Templeton preach, said that he was the most gifted and talented young man in America today for preaching. Templeton and Graham were friends, both ministered in Youth for Christ. Both were extraordinary preachers. But it has been said that in those early days, most observers would have put their money on Templeton. As a matter of fact, in 1946, the National Association of Evangelicals put out a periodical about the people that they were most excited about in Christianity that were coming up. And one of the people they... uh, gave attention to, one of the people they wrote about was Chuck Templeton. He was the guy they said in their five years of existence had been best used by God. They highlighted their ministry. They talked about him. They put him up on this pedestal. They talked about how the future was so bright for him. And what's interesting is, in that particular magazine, there is not a mention at all of a guy named Billy Graham. This was coming after a group of preachers had taken over the cities when revivals were rampant across the major cities of this country. You may not be aware of this, but the Ryman Auditorium was actually originally built for a revival. And as it was built and things like that, things in New York all over, they thought Chuck Templeton was actually described as the upcoming Babe Ruth of evangelism. Brian Clifford was another gifted 25-year-old fireball preacher. In fact, many believe that he was the most gifted and powerful preacher the church had seen in centuries. In the same year that Billy Graham was starting to get his start, Clifford preached to an auditorium of thousands in Miami. People lined up 10 and 12 deep, deep outside the auditorium, just trying to get in. In fact, when he was preaching at Baylor later that year, the president ordered class bells turned off so that the young man could minister without interruption from the student body. And what's interesting is, today, if you were to ask people about Billy Graham or Chuck Templeton or Brian Clifford, only one of those could be named. So what happened? Five years after Templeton was featured in a magazine, he left the ministry saying he no longer believed in the things he was preaching. By 1950, the future Babe Ruth wasn't even in the game and no longer believed in Jesus Christ and what he had done. By 1954, Bron Clifford had lost his family, his ministry, his health, and then his life. Alcohol, financial irresponsibility had done him in. He wound up leaving his life and their two Down syndrome's children. And at the age of 35, this once great preacher died from cirrhosis of the liver in a rundown motel in Amarillo. Now, you know what that story teaches me? It's not how you start. It's how you. We're going to do that again because you weren't ready yet. All right. It's not how you start. It's how you finish. Let me tell you something that over this last 30 days or 28 days, to be precise, we've been talking about how would we live if we had one month left to live. And what happens is if you begin to think about those questions, then you change how you live today. If you were to begin to think, how would I want to live my last 30 days, it starts to change how you live these 30 days. I don't know whether you're aware of it or not, but apparently we're a little bit on the cutting edge when it comes to this whole idea. I don't know if you've seen, but CBS has got a new reality show coming out starting sometime in January, February. They may delay it a little bit called Live Like You Were Dying. And what they're going to do on that television show is the guy that hosts Survivor is going to take people that are terminally ill, and they're going to allow them one month to reconnect with people they haven't reconnected with before, to do something outrageous they always wanted to do but never got a chance, and to do something that would leave a legacy. What we're talking about now is planning our lives in such a way that when we get to the end, that we don't have to change a lot of what we're doing because we are already living to leave that legacy. After reading the story of... Brian Clifford and Chuck Templeton and Billy Graham, I read a story related to that from John Bassano. John Bassano is a longtime pastor of First Baptist Church in Houston, Texas, and when he was getting ready to go into ministry, he had an older preacher come to him and say, John, let me give you some advice. He said, I'll be glad to take anything you got. He said, Stay firm to Christ, stay firm to your family, and don't ever waver from that. Well, John Bassanio was an idealistic young preacher, and he said, I don't understand why those would be important. I think when anybody going into ministry would want to do those things, he said, but here's the thing I've discovered, John. If you, take 20, if you would take 10 guys that at 21 wanted to go into ministry, what I've discovered is by the time they're 50, only 1 in 10 are still there. So John Bassanio, in the back of his Bible, wrote down the name of 24 guys that were going into ministry. And as he wrote down the names of the 24 guys that were going into ministry, he said, and when he was about 53 years old, he, every once in a while he'd have to go to the back of that list and cross somebody's name out. That every once in a while he would have to go to the back of the list and he would have to mark through somebody who had fallen off the ministry. And when he got to the age of 54, he discovered that only three of the original 24 were still serving. What we're talking about today as we talk about one month to live is that we want to live a life that gives glory to God, and that when we get to the end of it, we have left something here. We have made some sort of impact. We have given something to the kingdom of God that will further what Christ is doing. If you've got your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, if you've got an NIV version of the Bible at the top of chapter 3, there will be a little description that says on divisions in the church. And while it talks about in chapter 3 the divisions that are in the church and the cures for that, what I love is is that we can take and apply what he tells about divisions in the church for our own lives. He starts out by talking about it. We're not going to read that part, but in the first few verses, the first nine verses, he talks about people being immature Christians, mere infants, that they couldn't take the solid food, that they only had milk. And he talks about how maturity was necessary if they were going to grow up and do what God had called them to do. In fact, uh, what he basically says is that most divisions in the church are caused by immature Christians. People that aren't looking at the big picture, that aren't looking at what God is doing, that aren't trying to live their life for the glory of God, but instead are doing their own thing in their own way that they haven't understood the deeper truths of God. And what he says is, as we move on, that when we have to try to ask ourselves the question is, how are we building our lives? You know, one of the things that, that I've, being in church, being a pastor, that you have to kind of come to understand sometimes is how buildings operate. Well, when I was in seminary, my father-in-law used to ask me you know we would talk about questions and stuff and he says do they have a seminary yet on how to build a building because he said what i've discovered is when you get into pastoring you always are going to build a building sometime now some of you are real scared right now what's he about to tell us But what is interesting to me is we are in the process of looking at our buildings and looking how we can best use them for God's glory and what we currently have and what God might envision in the future. And most of you that were here last spring know that we voted uh, to hire a consultant that's helping us to look at that and how we can reach out to the community through our buildings. But in the process of that, I've had to get together some blueprints, discover some blueprints, find some blueprints. And when you look at that, what is always amazing to me is how you can look at those blueprints and somehow the people that are building the buildings know exactly what it's going to look like from those blueprints. I'm just going to tell you, they don't look like much to me. But an architect can look down and see all of it put together and see this, what we have here. You know, I uh, there's a book out in the foyer that's a history of Goodlettsville, and as you can imagine, um, our spire is kind of a unique um, Church design. Everybody, everybody know that? It's a little unique, isn't it? It's a little unique. And, uh, okay, I, I know this is what I was talking to the architects that we're discussing some things with. And I said, I know there's no varying degrees of unique. I mean, unique means one of a kind, right? So you can't be more one of a kind than something else. That's a grammar lesson right in the middle of the sermon for you. But our spire is very unique, even though there's no such thing. But what is interesting in that in that book is a picture of them building the spire. I can't have I couldn't imagine how it was done, and I saw the picture. I still don't know. But the point is, they take the blueprints and they build up something out of it. What God tells us here, what Paul tells us through the through God tells us through the Apostle Paul, is that God has a plan for our lives, and the important thing is that we build it with materials that will last. And I'm going to bet that most of us in this room, if we're honest with ourselves feel like that all we do over and over and over again is do things that don't last. We wash the dishes one day and the next day we come back and there are dishes in the sink again. Amen? Anybody ever wash dishes and they stay clean? You got that secret somewhere? We pick up the bonus room where the kids are playing and the next day we come in or 20 minutes later we come in and it's messy again. We wash our clothes and we wear them and they get dirty again. It seems like over and over we're just doing things. I, uh, I remember at the beginning of a very theological movie called The Incredibles, a Disney movie. At the beginning of that movie, he's talking about the difficulty of being a superhero. He says the most difficult thing is you go out and save the world and people just come along and mess it up again. And the truth is that we do things that don't seem to last. And What happens here is that the Apostle Paul tells us that we need to build with materials that will last. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3 in 1 Corinthians. It says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. Now, let me just tell you from the beginning, Paul is talking here about the church that he built this church that he with God's help has built this church but what you need to understand is he's talking about things that can apply to our personal lives he says others are building on it basically says is i built the foundation i told you what was important we focused on Christ and now i've turned it over to you but each one should be careful how he builds verse 11 for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid which is Jesus Christ If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality. If what he's built survives, he will receive his reward. I'll be honest with you, when you read that passage of Scripture, one of the first images that comes to mind is me is a story like The Three Little Pigs. You remember the three little pigs, don't you? Just help me. Say yes, okay? Just make sure you're here. The three little pigs, the the guy's coming along, and uh, the pigs all build a house, and some build out of good material. One doesn't build out of great material, and the big bad wolf comes along, right? And he huffs, and he puffs, and he blows the house in. And he goes to the first pig's house, and he blows it, and the pig's there all by himself. The pig runs to the second house. The wolf comes, he blows it down. If you read the original, by the way, you know the original version of the story. The pig doesn't get away, but that's for another day. The other two pigs, they finally run to their brother's house. He's built out of brick, and the wolf huffs, and he puffs, and he blows, and nothing happens. And what Paul says here is that as he's writing to this church, is that we in our lives have a foundation that is laid. If we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, then we have that foundation in Him. But as we're building on that foundation, we must be careful how we build because we're building with materials, some of which are very important, some of which are not. And as we build up that house, as we build up our lives, the truth is that on the day of the Lord, Judgment Day, the final day, when we stand before God, that it will be revealed what our life has been all about. In fact, what he says there is on that last day, some of the stuff will be burned up by fire and some will survive as through the fire. Now, an understanding of that for our day might be some will be saved, but they'll be saved by the skin of their teeth. And so the question is, what are these eternal building materials? What are the things that we need to build into our lives that will last when we get to that judgment day? When Christ says, You are saved, you have been accepted into the kingdom, you have been accepted into heaven, but let's see what your life has done. What are those legacy building things that we want? And the first thing that I believe is important is something that Carrie Shook talked about in the book this week, and that is your convictions. That is your convictions. He says it right here in verse 11, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now the first important thing to understand is that you won't have anything that lasts at all in this life if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That if you have all the money and wealth and fame and fortune, if you've got everything you could possibly imagine wanting in this life, that it won't make a hill of beans difference when you get to heaven if you don't have Jesus Christ. Because first of all, you won't get to heaven. And the convictions that we have have to start in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Last night, I had the privilege of of going and helping to lead a revival at the women's prison here. Uh, Our church, many of you may know this, many of you may not, but our church has a great ministry going at the women's prison. And we've been having revival services. They actually have already had one this morning. Their preacher wasn't very long-winded, Tom Spoke. So he's back. But they've already had, so they've had three revival services. And, And last night we were there and we were talking about the convictions in our lives, what we believe. And one of the things that I talked about is our world wants to give you all kinds of beliefs. I mean, you can turn on the television any time of day and find somebody that's going to tell you what to believe. When you wake up early in the morning and you decide that you're getting ready for work and you want to find out what you ought to believe, then CBS provides the early show, NBC provides the Today Show, and uh, ABC provides Good Morning America. And they'll have experts on there that'll tell you what to believe. If you make it past that and you still don't know, Regis and Kelly and The View will give you some ideas. If you make it into the afternoon hours, then you've got Montel and Maury and whoever the latest is out there. And then if you want the really good stuff, you wait for Dr. Phil and Oprah. And as you get through the day, you are told the things that you ought to believe. But what I like is that Carrie Shook talks about that his dad gave him a statement that I love. And he says, Beliefs are things.